Hi everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming. And uh, I'm. I feel like I'm going to repeat everything that I said yesterday because um, if you weren't here, then uh, it's good. If you were, I'm really sorry. Um, but uh, just I'm really, really thrilled to be here, and really want to thank everyone at the Third Coast for for having me. Um, one of the things that I just want to talk about with the way that I do these things is. Um, Basically, I'm going to play a piece and we can discuss every one of them afterwards. And uh, just to, a bit of background about this session and what we were thinking of, um, it's always really easy to report on war if you're just reporting on the conflict per se. I mean, you can say, you know, X amount of people died, X amount of, you know, bombs happened and this, you know, when you're reporting on the news, it's always very... It's, it's just, it happens in front of you and it's always very easy to say, you know. Um, so you don't really have to think of what to report, you don't have to think of a story, you don't have to be that creative. Um, I just wanna, from, from what always sort of drove me, uh, my parents are Lebanese and I actually lived in Lebanon from 87 till 90. And I spent 10 months in a bomb shelter at that time. I was about 15 years old and watching people try to go through their life in the middle of all of these circumstances um, was something that I always just, that, that stayed with me and that's something that I always questioned whenever I saw a situation, people in war and people in conflict, how do they live, how do they get by, do they work, do they go to school, um, how do they pick up their paycheck, you know, it, just, uh, those were the things that I focused on and those are the sorts of things that sort of drove the coverage that I did when I was in Iraq. So um, that's kind of the approach that I've taken. Um, so one of the um, one of the things that uh, the first story that I'm going to play now is a report that I did about the bakeries in Baghdad. And um, if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, bread is just the most important part of it. Um, there's bread, there's rice, there's cooking oil and that's about it. If you have bread, you pretty much have everything else. And, um, and, and the point was that this sort of core um, element of people's existence was being targeted. And, uh, and, and so I wanted to be able to focus on that for this piece. And I just, I mean, it, I mean it's difficult to talk about people living in adversity like this. Um, without constantly referencing the violence because it was just this part of their lives that they couldn't avoid, they couldn't control. So whatever they tried to do, there was always a sort of big elephant in the room and uh, it affected everything that they did, it affected every step that they made and every decision that they made about how they were going to carry out every day. Uh, so it, I'm gonna play the piece and then we can talk about it after. And you can add this to the list of problems in Baghdad. It's getting riskier and harder to find bread. There's been a string of attacks on bakeries across the capital, mainly by insurgents trying to further destabilize daily life. Here's NPR's Jamie Tarabay. Iraq's traditional bread is diamond-shaped, puffy and doughy inside. Cream cheese and overripe tomatoes is a typical Iraqi sandwich. Throw a kebab in there or mop up a plate of rice and lamb with bits of it low-carb doesn't work. Here, it's as much a part of daily life as water, and the insurgents know this. Business at this bakery in the neighborhood of Karada is brisk. 
One man flicks flour into the dough and kneads. Another shoves disks of dough into the oven with a long wooden board. Beside him, a worker stacks freshly baked bread into piles, puts them in plastic bags and ties them with twist tops. As he punches keys on the cash register, Saad Abu Ahmed says his customers depend on his bread now more than they used to because of frequent cuts in electricity and the hikes in the costs of cooking oil and gas. If there is no bread, there will be chaos. Look at the prices of gas cylinders. People can't bake bread at home, so all the burden is on our bakeries. So what would happen if this bakery shuts down? We pray to God for love and security. Abu Ahmed may pray for security, but he also keeps a couple of automatic rifles on hand should anyone attack his store. He says the attacks on other bakeries have frightened some of his workers away. And instead of staying open late, as he used to, he shuts his doors at 7 p.m. Bakery worker Ali Mahsen says his wages are good, but he doesn't know how much longer he can do his job. If you want the truth, there is no security anywhere. In Saidiya, a couple of days ago, they killed workers in a bakery shop. I saw it on TV. Iraqis can read about it too. A local newspaper ran the front page picture of a woman shopping at a bakery where an AK-47 was shown hanging over stacks of bread. The reports of attacks are frequent. Last week, at least three more bakery workers were killed in the neighborhood of Dora when gunmen stormed in and opened fire in their shop. Ali Mahsen says the bakeries are being attacked because the workers are mostly Shiite. First of all, because they are Shiite. And second, because they support Muqtada Sadr. And I can't tell you anymore. Most of the men who work in bakeries here in Baghdad are Shiite and poor. Most come from Shiite areas in the south, where wages are low and jobs are few. They usually come and work in Baghdad for around 20 days, go home to their families for 10 days, then come back. Raj Shalal Hussein comes from the mainly Shiite province of Misan, near the border with Iran. He stays with relatives when he works in Baghdad. Despite the dangers, he wants to keep his job here. There are many people in Misan who are unemployed and wish to come work here, but because of the explosions, they're afraid to. They think working for two or three thousand dinar is better than coming here. They're close to their families. It's only about security. Insurgents have routinely hit at civilians since the beginning, attacking open marketplaces, Friday mosque prayers, and unemployment lines with the aim of undermining any chance to rebuild after the US-led invasion. The bread line has always been a place where an attack strikes at the heart of the ordinary person. Everyone has to eat. Unemployed Haider Khaled buys bread every day if he can, but not at the same place each time. I don't know which bakery I should go to, because I don't know which one of them might be targeted. You can see how bad things are. If I stand in the street and a car parks close by, I leave straight away in case it explodes. Because of the attacks, many bakeries have closed down, forcing people to travel to safer areas of Baghdad to buy bread. Some, like Haider Khaled, try to avoid certain areas if they think they're prone to attack. Some steer clear of bakeries near police stations, or ones popular with Iraqi police who are also frequently targeted. Ali Jabour says he avoids crowded bakeries. If there are many people standing in line, I won't buy. You never know what might happen, and I'm afraid. I get afraid. Why shouldn't I? Someone might blow himself up in the middle of us all. 
Last night, a car bomb blew up outside a Shiite mosque across the street from a bakery. 11 people were killed. Jamie Tarabay, NPR News, Baghdad. That was in 2006. Okay. <laughs> Any more questions? Okay. Um, sorry, yes? Um, were you in danger when you did the, that story? Um, I think just by being there, we were in danger. But yeah, I mean, especially in 2006 was when everything started to just sort of disintegrate. And... Uh, if you were a foreigner, you were always in trouble. In 2003, um, towards 2004, was when they started kidnapping people. And so um, by that point, things got so bad that we couldn't spend a lot of time being outside. You would go do the reporting as quickly as you could and then get out of the way. So, yeah. What type of relationship did you have with your translator? Were they someone who was local? there like do they live there or was it someone who you picked out ahead of time or was it someone you brought with you who spoke the language um the, you know one of the the really good things about the npr bureau we um uh, you know i mean npr decided from the beginning that this was going to be something that they were going to invest in so we were really lucky we had a proper bureau we had a producer full-time um and we had a really good staff um we had at least three or four translators, stringers, fixers, whatever, as well as we had people up in the north and um, in Anbar and in Najaf and in Basra. So we sort of tried to cover the country as much as we could. Um, but you do have to have a relationship with the person that you're out there with in that you have to be able to trust them to not only... Um, and it's just... It's, it's just it's so many elements. It's not just relying on them to give you a reliable translation, but it's there's a safety factor. There's the I'm not going to take you down this road if I don't think it's if I'm not you know feeling particularly confident about what will happen to us if we get down there. Um, and it got increasingly tough when the sort of the ethnic uh, cleansing started to happen because you had people who had newsrooms where the Sunnis would eat on one side of the room and the Shia, I mean, you even had it in the offices, people would just stop talking to each other and people would start threatening each other. So you had all sorts of stuff. Whatever was happening outside in the country, it was a tiny little microcosm was happening in your office as well. So you needed to know them really well to be able to recognize when these sorts of things were happening. But you definitely, I mean, in a place like that, you need to know that you can count on the person who's there with you. To, to to make sure that nothing's going to happen to you. Yes. Are things better in Iraq now after America went in, or um, did we even help them at all? Well, it depends on your point of view. An Iraqi citizen. An Iraqi citizen probably wouldn't be very comfortable being occupied right now and uh, would probably blame the US for a lot of their problems right now and may even be missing Saddam Hussein right now. Were we actually responsible for that? Responsible for? I mean, problems that an Iraqi citizen might blame on us? Um, if it was post-war, then yeah. What do you think? I don't know. I wasn't there. That's why I'm asking. Okay. Well, what was your impression? It's been seven years. I mean, I don't. I think if you invade a country, 
You're not helping them. They wanted us out. I don't think we helped at all, but that's why I asked. Well, it's important. It's an important question. And it's really interesting to see what's going on there right now to see whether things have improved, what's changed, are things better, is the average Iraqi citizen's life improved? And I think that's a very valid question. And that's something that you should, you know, look at. Okay. Cool. Yes. Um, how long do you think NPR is going to keep their bureau there? We were just talking about that. Uh, we have a correspondent who's on contract there right now. They're winding down. Um, we don't have a full-time producer there anymore. Um, and I think that once the contract expires, I think we'll just rely on our staff and people will parachute in. And, you know, I, I even think Annie might be going back at some point. I'm not really sure. But I don't think it's going to be the full-time presence that we, that we had all this time. And that's indicative of everything from budgets to appetite to, you know, where they think the story is now and whether they think Afghanistan is more important, you know. So, yeah. Right. Well, you know, it depends on where you're going to go. Like, I wouldn't recommend going somewhere like Iraq um, on your own. I mean, I, I really, I was saying this yesterday. I really feel like the time for winging it is gone. I don't feel like this is. But you know, in in 2003, there were a lot of people who just turned up and said, "Yep, I'm just going to find someone. I'm going to." go to a bookstore or a barber shop and find someone who's going to be my translator, you know, get a cab driver, someone who can speak rudimentary English and drive me around. And in the beginning, you could do that. But you can't do that anymore in, in places like Iraq. Um, so I wouldn't recommend it. But I think if you're going to go somewhere, I mean, where, where there's no real danger, like say you land in Egypt, um, you know, you could... You, you just really, I feel like wherever you go, you make sure that you read up, you talk to as many people as possible, you get the, the insight and the advice of people who've gone and know, and you get their contacts from them. Um, as a journalist, you're as good as your contacts and um, you sort of ask as many people, you research it as much as you can, because if you're on your own, then a thousand things could happen to you and there's nobody who's gonna sort of watch out for you or know that you're missing, you know, in sort of the worst case scenario. So was there a question over? Okay, yeah, sorry. Oh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your experience being a woman reporting from a conflict or a war situation. Um, I was saying yesterday, sorry, I'm repeating myself, but you guys weren't here yesterday, so it doesn't matter. Um, it, it was a double-edged sword, you know. Um, the Middle Eastern culture is very sexist, and um, I never went anywhere without someone, whether it was, you know, Isra, who you'll hear at some point, um, as she's a female, um, or with, you know, my driver or, you know, one of our other translators. Um, but it's, it's just the Arab press is very, um, it's very closely monitored, it's very closely controlled, so you have people, um, so if you're like the state press, you sort of have to repeat the party line. And, and so the sort of the, the attitude that the Arab governments have towards their own press is you're just going to do what I say and not do anything different. And, um, and so if they realize that you speak Arabic like I do, they feel like, okay, well, you're just going to do like I tell you to do. Um, and, but they also have this really chauvinist way of treating women. You know, they think that, you know, it's adorable that a girl wants to ask a politician a question, you know. Um, 
and but you also have the ability to be able to talk to I mean I don't know I, I found I just I think it's the same as being you know a female reporter anywhere you know I don't think that the, it does it matters where you are you definitely there's a, there's a culture here but I think there's a culture clash everywhere you go you know what I mean yeah. Um, if you speak Arabic, do you still take a translator with you? Does yes. that help you better with your like with stories, having them speak in first person for them, or it was it's more of a cultural thing to have someone with you. It's very sort of um, you need someone who can say you know this is who she this is you know, this is Jamie she's a reporter and she'd like to ask you some questions. You need someone who's going to go in there and sort of facilitate things for you. Um, and sometimes I didn't want them to know that I understood what they were saying. You know, it's just, you, you just it, it, you just sort of work out what you want to do when you get there. It's very much an on-the-ground sort of decision. Do you do you generally speak to them in Arabic when you go to interview them? Yeah. Or just in, like, circumstantial cases, you're like, I'd prefer that they didn't know that I understood them? Yeah, when, like, for example, if I interview a politician, I'm going to speak to him in English because I want him to answer me in English and I want him to understand that this is a serious interview. So, um you know, it's just that that's, but in most other cases, I walk in there and I, you know, I say hello and, um, and it, it just makes them a bit more comfortable to know that, you know, I, I understand them. It helps a lot. It helps tremendously. Yeah. So, in the back. Um, I was wondering if you could go back to kind of the point that you introduced the session with, which is this idea of, especially having spent time in a war zone during part of your teenage years and looking around at kind of how people experience that on a very personal level and on a daily basis and um, kind of come back to that and talk about that a little bit from the reporting perspective. And um, I don't know exactly what my question is, but maybe how you incorporate that and like what that means about how you yourself um, report in conflict areas like this in order to try to convey some of that it, it, intimacy to people. I, I, it was the, the, the question that I always had was if there's someone at war, how are they living? And it's, it's, it, it's easier to sort of say, you know, there was a bomb at a market and meanwhile the security forces have come in and tried to establish order and the politicians are meeting and they're trying to set something up. But in the meantime, how are people getting by? And that was where, that was what I focused on. I mean, even when I wasn't in Iraq, when I was in the West Bank, um, and you know there was Operation Defensive Shield, in, you know in 2002, the Israeli military shut down the entire West Bank and declared it a closed military zone, and people couldn't go anywhere. So what was the school situation? You know, kids were supposed to sit there, like their version of the SAT. You know, what happened to the hospitals? What happened to um, you know people trying to get groceries? So every day I did a story on one of those things you, that's just it's where you sort of decide to direct your energy and uh, and you know you just that that's what I made what I was interested in you, you know you, you know your Pentagon reporter is going to talk about you know the Pentagon and the military and all that but I was sort of always more interested in what the Iraqis were doing yes so reporting on combat is always difficult but this is also it's, it's a counterinsurgency war so there's not clear lines that you know the, the different sides are pressed differently. I was wondering if you talk about, even with great fixers and, and uh, people locally there, that, what the kind of issues of trust that, that uh, creates in terms of knowing who you can trust when you're reporting, and also with the counter the insurgency in Iraq, especially media savvy as well, and if there's any sense of getting played or, or people trying to play you in that way. 
We, uh, I, I think things really turned in Iraq. I mean, after Daniel Pearl was killed, um, it was very, very clear that journalists were no longer um, you know, non-combatants. We weren't these sort of gray people that were on either side. And, uh, and, and that's when they started kidnapping and killing a lot of people. And um, you knew then that they didn't need you to put out their message. You know, I mean, they use the internet, they use um, video recordings. You know, you remember after September 11, Al-Qaeda would, you know, drop off a videotape at the Al Jazeera office and, you know, it would go out on the news. They, did, they don't need us to put out their message. So, um, it, I, I think, in, you know, I mean, in terms of getting played, I'm just trying to think. You definitely know that people try to use you to get their to push their own agenda, whether it's a politician or it's a sh tribal sheikh or it's, you know, the guy down the street. It, they're always going to say their point of view. And you just, I, I don't know, you have to talk to as many people as you can to get a better sense of the context of what they're saying, you know. I'm just, I'm just I, it's a difficult question. And then every day you sort of wonder, can I believe this person? You know, it's, it's like walking around in the fog. Sorry. Yeah. So what you said about, um, for safety reasons, having to sort of get things as quickly as possible and then be out, um, what kind of compromises do you feel like you have to make in terms of like really reporting the story from a couple of different angles and getting back up? That sort of the 30-minute rule was very much in force in 2006. That was when things got really dicey and the sort of the, the rule was it took them 30 minutes to get a kidnapping ring out there to get you and take you like that you had to be in your car out of the road um i think a lot of what it uh, compromised was the radio quality because i want to sit there i want to get ambi i want to do this i want to do this i'm like shh i gotta get a minute here and i want the cash register and i want that so it was really more about um this the sense of the place and half the time um i would do the interviews and then my staff would go back and record the ambi because it was like, Jamie, if you're just going to stand there with a microphone, I may as well do that, you know. Um, so in, in, it was really, really tense back in, like in, in those, when you had those little snippets of time to go in and go out. Um, and you just, you don't make appointments. I'm going to come, I might visit, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. I'm not going to tell you when, I'm just going to come. So you don't make an appointment, you don't, go there the, the same way and leave the same way. Um, like I went to see Gertrude Bell's grave. It's in this tiny little cemetery in a part of town that wasn't great. And you're just, you're so paranoid. You, 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 you pull over in the car and you get out straight away and you run around, you hope nobody notices you and you're all covered up anyway. So nobody really figures out that you are who you are because they can't see you. Uh, and then you're like in, you do like a quick sort of sweep of, the, the graveyard and you sit there and you look at her grave and you just okay you talk to the graveyard dude and um you know and it's just it's a really fascinating place because it was like an old british cemetery so there were all these people who were buried there in like the 1800s from when the british were there um that's an interesting lesson you might want to read up on read up on gertrude bell she's really interesting and um you know, and then I came out and I was like, I hope nobody saw me jump in the car and run. So you, paranoia is king. Anyway, yes. When you're reporting on a part of the world so different from ours, and you are trying to give a sense of what they're 
what their culture is like, what their lives are like. How much effort do you spend in your own writing recontextualizing what's happening on your, in your tape for a Western audience? That's a really good question. And being an Australian, that makes it even harder. Because I didn't even know what a PB&J was. Okay, um, and I, I still do it every day, and especially since I've had a kid, it's like, you guys call it a pacifier, I call it a dummy, um, you call it uh, a stroller, I call it a pram. So, I mean, it's, this is why, this is why I have, you know, this is why you have an editor. <laughs> so he can sort of help you, you know. But it's, it's, it, it's, it's something like, trying to give a context of a size of a place and say it's as big as Central Park. So some people have a, you know, a reference here that they can relate it to. Well, beyond like, beyond like verbiage and like trying to give people a sense of a place, like what about like, <coughs> larger like paradigmatic, paradigmatic shifts, you know? Like what if what like what say your subject is saying something that even like when even when translated might sound like really offensive to Western audience, but like works within like that culture. Like do you I wouldn't I, 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 I wouldn't I wouldn't frame it in a way that was offensive because you're translating. A translating isn't just a literal translation. You're interpreting what they're saying so other people can understand it in the context that they're familiar with. Um, you know, but it's, but there are some, I mean, there are some things that you can't um, make pretty, you know, you, if it's a tribal killing, if it's an honor killing, if it's, a, if it's some, you know, child brides, if it's, you know, how do you make that something that isn't going to be offensive to someone who thinks it's outrageous? And I think part of what we do is to show that there are things that make us different and there are things that we're, you know, very similar. And... And I think a lot of it is also, um, like, you know, if I do a story that is really upsetting, it's like, I want to see some outrage, you know? I don't want people to think that this is really nice and cute and, and, you know, let's just carry on with our commute and drink our coffee and everything will be dandy. No, I want people to react, you know? And that, that's kind of why we do what we do, because if it was nice and pretty, then it's not really war, you know? Yep. Oh, sorry, in the back. Uh, how long did you get to stay in Baghdad? What kind of place did you stay in? I was in Iraq on and off for five years, and um, it's reflective of the security situation, I changed where I lived many times, just like every single person who lived there. Uh, for the first three years, I was there for the AP, so we went from hotel, 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 house, compound. Um, NPR went from compound to another compound, and, and we, I think we've since changed housing twice. The last place near the Hamra was very badly damaged in an explosion. People were injured. It was too close for anyone's comfort. Um, but, you know, um, you know the, the, the house that we had in Baghdad, um, it, was, it was fine. You know, we, it, was, it had a garden, you know, but we lived in the big compound. So, you know, CNN was down the road. And Fox News was across from us, and it looked like Fort Knox because they had these enormous blast walls and like barbed wire and security guards. And we didn't have any of that. We were very, very low key. Public radio, you know, we can't afford all of that. Um, but you know, um, because the security situation was what it was, people could not just leave at the end of the day. 
So our staff would stay for three nights and then go home for two days. Um, and people would rotate so they didn't have a routine. If you're, you know, if you're here for three days and you go home for two days, and that's not like an even number, so people don't expect you on the, to come home on the same day and take the same route the same day. So we were always very um, strict about making sure that they did not take the same way home, that they weren't doing anything that was routine that might be a pattern that people were watching. Um, and, you know, the bedrooms were upstairs, the kitchen and the, the, the living rooms and the, the offices were downstairs. And um, there was one bathroom upstairs. Anyway. And there was not often hot water, so, yeah. I'm curious about sort of the editorial process when you're working out of such a, like, uh, tight, insulated security, security situation. You know, um, you know, the green zone is very much a bubble. How do you decide what to report on and what's... We weren't in the green zone. I really, I, I, I wish I, I need to get that on a t-shirt. I really, really do. I was just talking to Diana Douglas, who was my producer there in January in 2007, and I said, I got a question yesterday, people asking me how I reported out of the green zone. I was not in the green zone. The only people who were in the green zone were the Wall Street Journal, Time, and Newsweek. Everybody else was outside. We were all in the red zone. We all had bombings happen around the corner from us. We all had shootings over our heads. We all had to live with the electricity shortages, the water shortages, um, all the crap that the Iraqis lived through. We did that too. So I, I, I get so, as you can tell, I get really, I just, I hate the idea that I spend all this time there and I, you know, the, the deprivations and the risks that you take and then people turn around and say, so you were in a hotel in the green zone sipping coladas by the pool, you know? I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. And I don't mean you, I don't mean you, but it's just this sort of, this inference that you didn't really suffer, you didn't really work, you, don't really, you didn't really report because you never got out of the green zone, so you didn't know what you were talking about. And we got that a lot, and if any of you watched any of like the, the, the television reports in 2006 when all these people were coming to Iraq and doing these seven-day escorted trips that were sort of red carpet treatment. And they're like, everything's fine. What are these people talking about? There are schools being built and there are hospitals and they're exaggerating and blah, 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 blah. And like these people just aren't getting out. I mean, Rumsfeld was up there saying it's bullshit. And, and I was just like, are you out of your mind? And it was really, really offensive. They, just, they were trying to smack us down to sort of stop that information from coming out. Because no one would believe it. No one be would believe that 500 people were dying in a day. They just, they just didn't want to believe that that was happening. And that was, that, was a, that was a fight that we were dealing with on top of everything else. So in terms of my editorial process, um, it was the news of the day. And it was whatever sort of um, analysis we could give. And it was also whatever sort of features, like you know, the bakery story or you know, the story on the deaf school that I've got, all those sorts of things. And how did you find? Like, how did you figure out to do the bakery story, for example? Like it was on the front page of one of the local Iraqi newspapers. This picture of this woman buying bread, and there was like an AK behind her. And it was also, like, you know, what I said before about how are people living? How are they? 
are they buying bread? And it's also, I mean, if you, I don't know if you've ever read From Beirut to Jerusalem, but Tom Friedman's got this really good analogy of how he thinks the war is going by talking to this guy who makes glass, like, for the windows. And if his business is good, it means the situation is bad because he's making a lot of windows because they're always getting blown up. Um, it was that, that's sort of a barometer. How, you know, are people buying or are they staying at home and they're making their own bread? It, these are sort of indicators of... Um, you know, progress on the ground, as it were. Yeah, sorry, in the back. What drives you to do this incredibly dangerous and incredibly important work? I mean, speaking as a journalist, um, I guess. I, I, I was very... Um, I felt when, when, when everything was really getting really hard, I felt that there was an information war that we had to be a part of because it really got to the point where if you didn't have the media in Baghdad, then you either relied on the military or the insurgents for your information. And I felt like they couldn't be the only ones telling you what was going on because it was obviously only going to be their versions of what was happening. Um, and, and I just felt really, really compelled. And obviously, you know, foreign correspondents, war reporting is incredibly addictive and you don't want to not be part of the biggest story in the world. And, you know, it's history and all of that, and they tell you it's fantastic to be able to be there and bear witness and all that jazz, but, I mean, it's, it's a huge trip to do it. Yeah, you know. you see the rest of your career, you know, going in the same day. No, I got married and I had a child. <laughs> so um, I'm not doing that right now. Maybe I'll go back one day, but it has to be worth it. And it's, it, you make choices. You can choose to continue to do it. And, um, and then that's, that's all you do. Because you do give up so much to be there. I mean, I was there for so long. I missed birthdays and weddings and Christmases and everything. And that's a choice that you make. But you also have to decide, do I want to continue to miss out or do I want to actually do this too? So, I mean, everything is a choice. And you look, this was, this was a really exciting chapter of my life. And now I'm having this next chapter, and then who knows what's going to happen after that? You know, I mean, there, there, I can tell you that when Haiti happened, I was, you know, so. <laughs> I mean, the cubicle in DC, and all the world is falling apart, and I'm not there. How can I not be there? It, that was really difficult, and that's that's the drug. Anyway. Um, well, actually, I can play a piece that is part of my thing that I can that I think translates so much better with radio than television ever could. And when it finishes, we can talk about it. Can can I? Yep. All right. Cheers. Saddam Hussein was hospitalized today in Baghdad, according to the chief prosecutor in his trial. The former Iraqi leader has been on a hunger strike for 17 days. He's now being fed through a tube, the prosecutor said. Also in Iraq this weekend, dozens of Iraqis, Shiites and Sunnis, died in sectarian violence. A car bomb in the northern city of Kirkuk killed at least 17 people today. In Baghdad, a suicide bomber blew up a minibus, killing at least 33. And in Sadr City, a bomb killed eight people. Yesterday, in a shooting attack, seven Shiite construction workers were killed in Baghdad and five Sunni civilians were blown up in a bomb blast. 
The incidents were just a handful of the many attacks that take place daily around the country. Many of those killed die in well-publicized bombings or gunfights on the street. Many others are killed less openly, and their bodies are later discovered. In Baghdad, some of the corpses are pulled from the Tigris River in the Shiite neighborhood of Qadamiya. In this graphic report, NPR's Jamie Tarabay tells the story of a group of volunteers who spend their days retrieving the dead from the water. Eighteen-year-old Ali Ghanem is known as one of the better swimmers here. A couple of days ago, he retrieved eight bodies. The day before that, eleven. He's been doing this every day since last winter. It's normal. I just pull the body. I get used to it. I pull the body by its clothes, the hands. I get used to the smell. He and the other divers may be used to the smell, but they say they're still shocked at the way many of the people have been killed. Ahmed Hussein's nephew was kidnapped along with two of his friends a couple of weeks ago. Later, their bodies turned up in the river. can't imagine the way they were tortured. I haven't seen anything like it. They used to say that Saddam executes people and grinds their bodies up. But it's nothing compared to this. It's so horrible. Hussein stayed to help after his nephew's body appeared. He says this is his job now. Qadmiya is home to one of the holiest shrines in Shiite Islam. The area that overlooks the river is clean and lined with villas. Many of the people who live here have banded together to take care of the bodies. They donate white cotton sheets for shrouds and rose water to sprinkle on the corpses to mask the smell of rotting flesh. Because the killings appear to occur upstream, in mainly Sunni insurgent strongholds, locals believe most of the dead are Shiite, although that hasn't been verified. Adil Abu Saif is a follower of radical Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr. 100% of the bodies in the river are Shias, because the families who come looking for their missing are Shias. The killers are like bandits. They wait on the road for those who come tired from work. There are no American soldiers and there are no checkpoints. He says in two months, more than 400 bodies have been retrieved from the river in Karamiya. People come down to the river to wait for bodies of missing relatives to turn up. Families post pictures of the missing on a board near the place where the bodies are brought in. Ali al-Sadi lives near the riverbank and has been filming most of the bodies as they come in, part of a local record the residents here keep to pass on to authorities. We have noticed something strange lately. The bodies that come are not handcuffed. Their hands have been drilled and they're bolted together. He says the killers cannot be real Muslims if they treat people this way. Is this the holy war they talk about? There's no mercy in the hearts of the killers. Al-Sadi says sometimes the bodies are so decomposed that their limbs fall off as the divers try to bring them in. The worst thing I ever saw was a human head. It was floating alone. That was the worst thing I've ever seen. He says the river police don't help. Once, he says, Kadmiya residents found a body floating in the river at 2 a.m. and called for the police to collect it. The police said they weren't allowed to use their boat at night. It's a shame for Iraqis to say they have a government, because our government hasn't done a thing for the people. It's impossible to say they've done something. Then the divers see something. 
They call for rope to help bring the body in. It's a man. He's been burnt. He's been dead for a long time. Someone brings a white cotton sheet to wrap the body. One of those helping stands to the side and vomits. They chant, there is no God but God, as they stand over the three bodies they've recovered today. Mohammed Qasim calls the local police, asking them to come collect the corpses. Two have been laying near the riverbank since four in the morning. This is the fifth time we've called you. We've just pulled the third one out. The smells everywhere. The sun is on them. He ends the phone call, angry. They won't come. We wait two, three hours. Either they come or they don't. The swimmers are tired, breathing heavily. They don't get paid for what they do. They say it's their religious duty. They say they need life jackets to do their job better. One asks for a motorboat. Ali Imad says, forget the boat. A life jacket and plastic gloves are all he needs. Please, it would help us swim and help us when we pull the body. Our lungs get filled with water. No one will bring us gloves. The police come wearing gloves and show off, but they refuse to carry the body. They say they'll get dirty. They spot another body and they go out to retrieve it. Jamie Tarabay, NPR News, Baghdad. NPR's Abdullah Mazed contributed reporting for this story. To see his photos of the volunteers at work, go to npr.org. I just thought that was so evocative. And I, I, I think that that's something that you really couldn't do with TV. And I remember at the time... Um, um, I remember at the time that it was so difficult for TV people to get anything out. They were lucky if they could get a 90-second piece out, and that was six and a half minutes. So we were so lucky that um, even a three and a half... You just told me three and a half minutes is... For us, it's like the most sort of squeezed-out little piece of... Oh, my God, it's a throwaway. And they would kill for three and a half minutes on TV. And... I don't know. I just, I just think that this was this story was so amazing because when it came out, everybody we we had so many people call and email and say, "Who do I give money to so this guy can get a life jacket?" I mean, I want to send him gloves. And the people who listen to public radio are just so amazing because they just, you know, they just open their sort of their hearts to... I had one story, you know, about a girl who was so depressed that she was taking sleeping pills. There was a woman in Texas who wanted to adopt her. You know, I mean, I just feel like there's the reach that you can have with these pieces that you just can't get on television. But that's just my very... Sorry, Aron, you know, how you feel about TV, but uh, it's my own personal opinion. I really, I do feel like there's an intimacy... Like you can feel the water almost lapping, you know, in that piece. And I just think that that's something that, um, and if anyone says they wanted to hear vomit, you can leave. Because there was one guy yesterday who was like, I was bracing for the vomit and I didn't get it. And I was really unhappy about that. <laughs> it's just like, it's public radio, man. What do you want? <laughs> yes. Do you find it difficult to listen to your work? Yeah. 
I really do. Um, I was just laughing back then because the last guy who did the voiceover was Muhammad. I mean, these are these are my people, and um, we've been through so much. And hearing, the, I just I remember how nervous he was about doing this voiceover, and I just it just makes me laugh um, to to think about them and. You know, there's there's a piece that I have here that is is always upsetting for me to hear, but it's there's such a strong narrative to it that I feel like it's actually really good radio. And um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it you know, there's like the the piece that I uh, piece that I did about when the Humvee I was in got hit by an IED. I can't listen to it. It's just too, you know, it's just too close for me just yet. So yeah. Um, the pieces you produce, are they one of the ways you used to cope with what you had to go through and then like the things that you've had to see? Yeah, you know, that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, sometimes that you see something and you just feel really strongly about it. And I was really lucky. I had an editor who was 100% supportive of everything that I did. I never had him say, you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, you know, it, obviously, when there was like there was a political story, they're like, you've got to do the political story. So clearly, you know, you have to do that. But in terms of, there was no sort of set agenda that I needed to follow. I didn't need to follow a particular line, um, and they just sort of trusted me to be able to report the way that I saw it. Yeah. Um. So I was just at a session like that was le not trying to use like a scripted voiceover, and I was wondering if you ever try to make it sound more conversational or like I don't know or or does it matter like I mean I think that the people who are really gifted at this are the people who make it sound like they're not reading from anything at all um and uh and I'm not there yet so thank you <laughs> but no I think you know I mean you do do stand-ups every now and then and be like you know I'm standing here on this thing and this is what I see and um and, and I think that you, I mean, there are people who are very creative. There are people who write their scripts and then speak as though they're having a conversation. You would never know that they were going off a script. Yeah. And, and I know a lot of people at NPR who do that. And I just think they're enormously talented. So I'm getting better, I think. But, you know, I mean, I'm getting there. Sorry. Um, I'm just wondering how all this has affected now that you know, you're back here and working out of the um, how, the, how it's affected how you hear news from around the world and what some of your impressions are. In, in terms of... I mean, how, I guess, how your experience um, on the ground in Iraq has um, influenced what you hear, how you hear when you listen to the news, um, given that most of us, you know, have never gone and will never go to Iraq and see it on the ground. But just in terms of... Um, and that's, you know, so our interaction with it is what we hear and, or what we see in the news. And um, so if your experience as a reporter there has impacted how, how and what you hear um, in the news here and what your impressions are, I guess, of, of what, what, our, what our perspective is on what's going on in the world. Um, I definitely feel like I don't hear enough about what's happening in the rest of the world. And I think that that's a, a, a matter of the news cycle. You know, we're coming into elections 
and uh, and there's also the resources you know with this economy a lot of you know so many people have shut down their foreign bureaus so you're not getting a really good voice of what is happening in different places um it's definitely much more personal. I definitely have a very much more personal response to things. And um, and there are questions that I have when I read a piece that I want to go there and find out for myself. You know, I feel like I want to call somebody and say, hey, is this real? Is this true? Like what? Like what kind of um, you know, I mean, like when, oh God. well, you know, I mean, like, when I left Iraq in December 2007, Lulu took over, Lourdes Garcia Navarro, and one of the first things she did was she went to Sadr City. And when I was there, Sadr City was like, verboten, and I was so jealous. And I just wanted to go and see what it was like, because you know it had been like two years or so, and so much had changed, and the fact that she got to be there, and she did a stand-up from there. And our staff was really nervous about it because she was out there with her microphone and it was very obvious. And, um, and I really, really, really just wanted to be there myself to know, you know? Anyway, yes. You play a media critic, as long as you don't say mean things about television. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned that information war that was taking place around 2006 in, in Iraq and we were getting sort of different versions of reality uh, in, in the media here. I feel like a similar thing's been happening, especially the last couple of months from Afghanistan, where we're hearing about, on the one hand, coalition forces taking ground that's been held by the Taliban for a long time, and I'm also reading reports about the Taliban are just lying low until withdrawal begins. So I'm just kind of curious how, how you read the news, uh, you know, having reported in a similar situation where, where we're getting conflicting reports, that somebody's now over here having... It's so hard. It's really hard to to really know what's going on. And you do, you hear a thousand different things. I mean, I don't I mean, I'm Australian, so I, I heard last week that the Australians have renewed their military commitment to Afghanistan for 10 years. And I thought, well, they don't, they wouldn't do that unless they'd had a chat with the people here. And what I haven't seen anything about a 10 year commitment in Afghanistan from anyone. And, and you just, I, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like there are so many questions and I feel like, it, it, I feel like it's a really difficult story. I never went to Afghanistan. I think anybody who does it is incredibly brave. And um, I, I just, there are so many facets to it that uh, if you're in the South, it's different to, you know, being in the West and the whole political story and Karzai with his bags of money. I mean, it's just, uh, you don't even know where to start. Uh, but I think that the more information we have, the, the better we can understand it. And, and I think that that's really the answer. I just feel like you just need to get as much information as possible. I mean, how much do we know about Iran or North Korea? And we don't know a lot because there's not a lot of information coming out of there. And that's what Iraq was like in 2003, because suddenly this place was open. It was like flooded by journalists because suddenly, you know, this place had been closed off and you couldn't go anywhere without a minder. It was open and you could get, get, get in the car and drive wherever you wanted. And it's kind of like the same thing with Iran and North Korea. You just, these places are so secretive. And anything that happens there, there are a thousand questions about the veracity of it. So I feel like the more stuff that comes out, the better of an idea we can get. I could be wrong, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Right in the back. It seems like a lot of, and this happens you know, across different types of media, that people working in foreign bureaus tend to rotate every few years. Uh, and I wondered if you thought that was a good thing or if you would propose a different model. 
Um, well, do, would you rather them be based in one place for 10 years? Because I don't know if anyone would really want to live in Iraq for 10 years. Or, or well, you know, if, you know, maybe if locals would, you know, sort of take on the role of that instead of, you know, people that go over there to report for their home countries. I don't know, you know, what your thoughts are on that. We're definitely, I mean, we, our staff there is going to stay there. I mean, we have, we have Iraqis in our bureau there, and I really, I mean, we already hear a bit of Isra um, Abdul Hadi on the radio a bit every now and then she files something, and I would love it if she was our Iraq, you know, person in the future because I think she's, she has, she's just as driven and fearless a reporter as anyone who rotates in and out of there, and she knows better than them, and she speaks the language. So I would love, I would love that. I think that, um, I think it's actually key to getting a real understanding of what is going on in any place in the world if you have somebody local reporting on it. But at the same time, it's what we were talking about before, you need somebody who's going to be able to explain it to a foreign audience or to a Western audience. And, and, and so it's so, you know, there's, there's sort of two sides to that story. Sorry, you, you had a question. Yeah. Uh, what news sources do you trust? What news sources do I trust? Yeah. Like, like do I read the paper? <laughs> no, like, given that you have don't really know what's going on, who do you trust to tell you the facts? Uh, um, well, I listen to NPR, and I hope you all do too. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I, I I listen to NPR. I read the Times, but I also it's not just like publications. It's people. Like I know the reporters, so I actually um, when I see the byline, and a lot of people don't notice bylines, but I do, and I think okay, it's you know Michael Slapman's reporting out of Cairo, or Anthony Shadid is reporting out of Baghdad, and these people are people who have such incredible knowledge and. Um, they just they just know it better than anybody, and I always know that when I read it, I'm going to get something that's honest, and and very sort of you know reflective of what's happening where they are. So those are people I definitely, I, I it's definitely for me because I've I've worked with these people. You know, if I know the reporter, I you know, I come at it with a better sort of. I want to hear what you know, what's his face from the BBC is saying about this sort of thing. You know. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so, uh, was there, to what extent were you doing investigative pieces, and was there any opportunity to do investigative pieces, or was the, the daily news... It was really difficult to do that. Um, you know, I mean, if you're the one person in the Bureau, then your job is to do the news. And that was what was really, I guess, the New York Times had three people full-time. So that's why they could do the Blackwater shooting investigation, or they could do the sort of corruption, um, the you know the special inspector general report, um, and and that was really difficult for me because I saw this, and it'd be nice to do that stuff. But if you're too busy sort of trying to take care of the shows and make sure that they have their piece for the day, um, then it's really difficult to do that. But you know, I mean, it was. I didn't get to do it anywhere near as much as I wanted to. Absolutely, it's difficult. Sorry. How would you like suggest going up? Like, if I I was interested in, I don't know. I guess like something like what you do. How would you suggest? It's like starting. What do you want to do? Well, I mean, I don't know. Just like, like reporting and. But what do you like to do? Do you like to write? Do you like to record? Do you like to like, make radio? Like radio. I'm just saying, like, 
how you started that part of your job? Well, I, I started as a journalist because I like to write. And that's how I came into it. And I did what I needed to do to get those skills. So I, I guess I got the equivalent of an internship at Australian Associated Press and I started literally at the bottom. And I learned shorthand and I covered courts and sports and finance and police and all of that. And I tried to get as good a grounding in all those different things as possible. And then I was really lucky. I got the opportunity to go overseas and then I joined a foreign bureau and I went from there. Um, and I guess with radio, um, you have to sort of build your skills the same way. And, you know, if you want to go overseas, as I said this before, you really need to, to, to research. You really need to know where you're going, what you're going to do, and who you're going to do it with. So, like, did you go overseas before you even started with, like, N- like, with, um, like NPR and stuff? And then they just found, like, found you out, or...? No, I did not go to Baghdad without a job, <laughs> okay? You just don't, I mean, I, I was saying this before, I just, it's not, it's not, you can go probably anywhere in the world if it's, if there's no, not a war zone, like you, if you wanted to go to somewhere in Europe, um, you want to go to Africa, you want to go to Asia, and you want to record some things and put them together and, and, and freelance them, do that. You know, but before you go, have a conversation with a foreign editor. You know, talk to people here, tell them what you want to do before you go out there. So you at least have established a contact. That's what I would suggest. Yes. I'm sort of curious about the line between your, de- you know, sort of where the line was uh, between your desire to go out in the story and your personal safety, and sort of what, whether or not your gender sort of played into that in any way. Um. I don't, it didn't. It, it it wasn't about that. Um, it was more about is this safe enough? So you wouldn't go to a, a a car bomb site because you knew the second bomb was coming. So you know there were things that you did or you did not do. You wouldn't go to Shala because you knew that that was a place where they um, you know that's where the, the kidnapping rings hang out. You know it's just you just it's it's just a daily question of what do you wherever we went, especially when it was. Like, really rough sort of times um everyone would be involved we'd listen to what everyone had to say the drivers the office manager the producer we'd sit down we'd map it out where are you going which road are you going to take how long are you going to be there for um you know it was like every little step was planned so nothing was left to chance and it's just it, you know it's very stressful but that's what you needed to do to do it It's definitely, um, I mean, I'd never lived in America before, so um, it was always, um, was always, there was always going to be a culture shock for me, and it's, you, you do feel like, you, you have moments when you think, I'm getting really worked up over something that is really trivial, and meanwhile, everybody in this country is just lucky to get home at the end of the day, you know, that's sort of like the extreme, but it, I think it's just you, you, you know, it, it, you have to. Um, I guess it's like the way you transition and the people that you're with, and you have to make sure. I mean, you know, we can talk about this a lot. It's like you go and the people that are with you, 
um, help you readjust. You just, I feel like if you come from a place of hardness and a place of a lot of suffering, you've got to make sure that you come to a place where there is a lot of warmth and and the people that are ready to take care of you, you know. Is there anything that you found it very hard to get over? Like, is, is there something that like, has had lasting impacts on you? Now that you have more of like a sort of family life and stuff that makes it hard to go um i definitely don't like to think a lot about all the dead people that i've seen and i certainly don't like to talk about it especially since i've had a kid now um when i think about all the children that i've seen and all the suffering that they've gone through that is really difficult for me to deal with now and i don't know if i could do it anymore because I, I can't see it. I can't handle seeing children suffering and it not affect me personally. I just find it really difficult now. Um, and But some people can, and maybe it's going to take me some time, but I sort of, I see that and I see my kid, you know, and I just think, what would you do if you were in this position? Like, it would just, I, I have these really um, sort of apocalyptic nightmares that I get up at four in the morning and I wake my husband up and I say, the world has ended. You know the first thing that's gonna happen is the mobile phone network is gonna crash. Where do we meet? Where do we meet? Where do, where do we meet? And he's like, it's four in the morning. Why don't we just meet here? And I'm like, okay. Okay, now I can go back to sleep. So it's kind of like that. I'm just a bit extreme. If he's late half an hour, I, I see him lying in the gutter somewhere and I'm like, do I, how long do I have to wait before I call the cops? You know, what do I do? So I'm a bit, I, I have a few issues. Anyway, I'll get over it. I'm lucky, I'm really lucky, you know, I really am. Sorry. Um, so given, uh, given the resources that organizations like Times, CNN can throw at, at Iraq and taking nothing away from NPR's, your great coverage and NPR's great coverage, what more could NPR or public media do in terms of pulling resources to do more investigative pieces, or what 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 can public media do, uh, acknowledging their lack of financial strength, but their great history of. I, I could I could deflect this question to somebody sitting in the audience who did do a great investigative piece about Haditha. Right there. Person from Frontline, stand up. What was the question? <laughs> Um, what can public media do to better come together to m carry out investigative pieces in places like Iraq? Yeah, I mean, in situations like this, it costs a lot of money. To, to well, collaboration is actually one, one thing, and, and, and we've been doing that, you know, with, uh, with you know, PBS Frontline and NPR, and the news hour has had, you know, uh, uh, for instance, you know, I think Renee, when Renee was in uh, um, uh, Afghanistan, she was doing spots for, for the news hour. And it's, it's funny because you know we were, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, is that people are much more apt to collaborate now than they were even five years ago. And it's a, we, I was at a conference of investigative reporters a few months back, and people are all talking about working together in a way that these people would never, ever, ever do before. Um, they were more conscious about, about their turf, so I, I think that's one of the best tools. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Um, because uh, we're more desperate now. Right? I mean, the, 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 you know, the industry, we all, we all know this, that, that yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're not immune from what's happening financially, and, and studies have shown that journalists are losing their jobs at a greater you know, 
great, but another profession. So you need to survive all. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> um, okay, so what I want to do now is I want to play a piece um, that is, uh, you know, we were talking about what's difficult to hear. This one's actually quite difficult to hear, but I want to play it because it is such a strong narrative piece. And uh, it was, I'm not going to say fun is the wrong word to use, but it was, I felt it was really, it was, it was really good to have done it because I, I you know, sort of, and paid tribute to the subject, but also um, it was just so gripping and it was able to explain to people who you hear about it every day. It's basically, it's a story of a kidnapping, but it's really, it's like the anatomy of a kidnapping because we, you know, you, you hear about it every day, someone get kid, gets kidnapped, but then what happens? You know, how do, I mean, what happens after that? And this was a really good chance to be able to illustrate it for people. So, um, so you can take a listen. Scores of people were killed today in Baghdad after two nearly simultaneous bombs hit a predominantly Shiite commercial district. We tell you stories like that almost every day, and the victims of that daily violence, the civilians, are usually anonymous to us. But in this case, if you're a regular listener to this program, it's not true. Abdullah Miziat, a reporter in NPR's Baghdad Bureau, is a familiar voice to our listeners. He's read many reports and commentaries on life in Iraq, and he's contributed to many more. And now he's experienced the tragedy of Iraq firsthand with the kidnapping of his father. NPR's Jamie Tarabay reports. Abdullah's father, Arif, was driving his brother to work in Baghdad several weeks ago, as he did every morning. They had barely left their neighborhood when, Abdullah says, a car with four men drove into their path forcing Arif to screech to a halt. All the four came out. They put their pistols on my father's head and my brother's head and um, asked them to leave the car. They took my father and they put him in the other car. They left Abdullah's brother in the street. Don't turn around, they told him, until the road was clear. When they had sped off, his brother called Abdullah, who told him to go back home and meet him there. I didn't know what to do. I just, I came here and I sat. And, you know, this is what you hear on the news every day. But only this time it happened to me. I sat and, you know, started crying and didn't know what to do. Abdullah's father, Arif Miziad, retired in 1994. He'd worked for the Iraqi government in Europe, Africa and the U.S. He spent his later years taking care of his family. He'd run errands for his children fix their cars, buy last-minute groceries. He wasn't particularly religious and wasn't politically active. Upon reaching his parents' house, Abdullah found his mother on the bedroom floor crying. All the family's relatives telephoned after hearing word of the kidnapping. Abdullah told them to stop calling until he had more information. Then his mobile phone rang. The caller ID said it was his father. Abdullah recorded the call. I picked up the phone and there was a man talking and, you know, out of shock, I thought it, it was my father. And I was calling him, you know, father, is that you? It turned out to be uh, the guy who's negotiating from the kidnapper's side. I mean, it was a kind of strong voice. He talks slowly, but he feels he's very, you know, he's controlling the whole situation. The caller asked Abdullah if he was related to the man they were holding. Abdullah said it was his father, that he was sick, a diabetic, and old. 
and I started begging them almost in tears, you know, please don't hurt him. He's my father. He's an old man. He hasn't done anything. The kidnapper responded, we know. Then he asked Abdullah if his father was precious to him. Abdullah said yes. The kidnapper said, I want money. He asked for 10 notebooks. A notebook, as it's called on the street, is 10,000 American dollars. In other words, $100,000 for Abdullah's father. The United Nations says kidnappings have become a way for armed groups in Iraq to finance their activities. Abdullah told the man on the phone he didn't have that kind of money. He said, well, you know, you need to decide. It's your father, and your father told us that my boys love me, and they will do anything. The kidnapper said he would call again later that day and hung up. Abdullah telephoned his family, relatives and tribe for help raising the money. The kidnapper called back at three in the afternoon. He said he wanted the money that same day. Abdullah told him that was impossible. And he started threatening me that, you know, if you don't cooperate with us and do as we told you, you know what would happen to your father. We will torture him. He said, I'll, I'll crush his head and I'll send it to you as a gift. Abdullah pleaded with the kidnapper to let him speak with his father. After more threats, there was silence. And then Arif's voice came over the line. Arif told Abdullah he was being treated well, but he sounded weak. Then his kidnappers were back on the line demanding money. They negotiated and the ransom came down a bit. Abdullah felt he needed to be strong. His whole family was depending on him. I had to do it because nobody wanted to do it. My uncle said after he heard the conversation, you know, it's my brother, but I would have broken down. I couldn't deal with these people. Abdullah managed through his family and loans to raise enough money to satisfy the kidnappers. The man called the next day, told Abdullah to wear a long Arab tunic, wrap a kofiya around his head and bring the money to a drop-off point. Against the objections of his family, Abdullah agreed. He forbade anyone to follow him. It was raining when the man called Abdullah again and gave him directions. Abdullah followed his instructions to a large traffic circle. And then I waited there and he told me to cross the street on the other side and um, to put the money between some blocks that set up there. There's a space for two, three inches where you just drop it. And I asked when, I said, now, drop it and then go home. And then what? While I was talking to him, the phone just died. In all the panic and worry, Abdullah had forgotten to do a simple thing, recharge his mobile phone. It was the last time Abdullah would hear from the kidnapper, and he's heard nothing from his father. Abdullah dials his father's cell every day, and every time he gets the same message. The cell phone is switched off. Every day people go missing in Baghdad, and every day their relatives are forced to accept the possibility those missing are lost forever. Some people now tattoo telephone numbers on their arms, so if they are killed, their families can be contacted. If there's no way of knowing, worried relatives often have no choice but to go to the central morgue. There, they stare at large screens displaying photos of the corpses inside, hoping to find their loved ones. Abdullah unwillingly joined them. Every time I go there, it's like hell. Families looking for their loved ones for the past three or four months. And there's a crowd of people, mostly women, who come to check for their family members. 
And every 10 or 15 minutes, somebody jumps and says, that's my son, or that's my father, or that's my husband. And they start crying, and everyone's saying, God is great. May God's mercy be on him. It's been weeks since Arif Mziad was taken at that Baghdad intersection. His relatives refused to give up hope, but Abdullah's entire family has now moved out of Baghdad. It was especially hard on his mother, who didn't want to leave in case there was news about Arif. But their neighborhood is no longer safe. Other elderly people in their street have also been kidnapped. Most of the families have paid the ransoms. None of the victims has returned home. Jamie Tarabay, NPR News, Baghdad. saying you shouldn't go I'm just saying you shouldn't go alone I mean if you're if you're if you're going there without a support system or without help then I don't think that even if you go to Iraq on your own I I just I mean I don't think that's a good idea you know I don't I think you should go absolutely well I mean what is a support system is it a support system or family or where are you gonna go are you gonna no no but no I'm just saying I'm saying say you want to go to Okay. Do you know where you're going to stay? I don't have many places to stay, but... Do you know who you're going to see? Do you know um, how much money you'll need? Do you know where you're going to get a driver from? Do you, I mean, these are the questions that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about logistics. That's what I mean when I say support. So if you do go to an appointment, someone's able to, someone's able to say, she hasn't come back yet. That's what I'm talking about. That's why I say don't go without any support. That's what I mean. I don't mean like you need to have an extended family, you know. The way I took that was that um, just the way that I heard it was that don't go unless the U.S. is already in or something. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. No, if you have the means and the ability and the resources, you should absolutely go. You should absolutely go. I mean, you know, there's there's people going in and out of Iran all the time. You know, but they do it because you know, there are people that they know there who can help them out or, you know, they, they sort of, they work it out. You you get there on the ground, you work it out. Um, I mean, I think like a sort of, I mean, it's difficult because in some places the press is the state-sponsored press, so you can't really go to the local newspaper, but then there's some places that you could, um, you know, and it's just... I, I would absolutely, if you, if uh, you should totally go. I mean, I'm not saying that you should. That I, I'm sorry you misunderstood because I shouldn't. I should have made it clearer. I don't think you should go somewhere on your own where no one is going to be able to keep track of you. Is what I meant. Yeah. Um, I think one of the reasons the story was so poignant is because, um, like the main character, the subject, um, spoke English as a first language, or just spoke English 
and you could hear like this anxiety and emotion in his voice. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, when you're reporting on stories where like the majority of them are translated and you have voiceovers, how do you negotiate that? You know, how do you sort of try to get the emotion of these like really deep stories when you can't have the subject speak for themselves? I, I think that's really about the voiceover that you get. And it's a problem because sometimes you want to have, like if some of the other stories that we played, it was our Iraqi staff and they were nervous. They didn't, they didn't like the way they sounded or there were people in DC, you know, because we didn't have enough people to do the voiceover. So people in DC and they try to give it as much inflection as possible. Um, it's, it's just, I think it's a case by case thing. It's difficult. It, it definitely, especially if it's something that is this sensitive, you want someone who's going to be as sensitive um, to it. And I, you know, that's definitely, I mean, sometimes it's out of your hands. It's like whoever is available for the piece to run, you just got to get them to read it, you know. But it's, it's a problem, I absolutely agree. Yes? Um, has Abdullah heard back from his father since after no. the last story? No. Was the tape from the cell phone, is that the actual cell phone? Yes. Okay. So was he, was he recording it? I'm curious because I mean he's working with you guys. So was he recording it? Like, I just am curious about how that worked out. And then I also noticed that his tracks were really, really clear. And that yours sort of had a, a funny sound background. Um, and I was just wondering what this studio setup was for you to your tracking. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm very inclined to believe that Abdullah recorded that call because when something like that happens, you're so emotional, you don't really have a grip on what is being said. And so you record it to have a clearer sense. Um, you know, after the fact, you know, it's very traumatic to go through something like that. And also because it was probably the last time he was ever gonna hear his dad's voice. And every time I hear that, I listen to his, like his father saying, and the translation that you don't hear because we're talking about him is like, you know, Zen inshallah. It's like, I am very well, thank you, and thank God I'm fine. And it's just the voice of his that's just, I and mean, I find it very difficult to listen to. Um, Can I, okay, as you feel like most people in this situation, since it happens a lot, are, are, are recording it on their cell phones? Is that like. You know, that's an excellent question. The thing about Iraq, when the US invaded, suddenly everything was open. People were getting satellite dishes, people were on the internet, and they had newer phones than you have here. It was crazy. It's like they got off the truck from Sweden. It was just, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Every day, look, one of my staff was coming in with a new phone or a new computer, and I was just, how? You know, so these things, they could record on them, and I was really, it wouldn't surprise me if other people were doing the same thing. I mean, in the story, we talk about how people tattoo their numbers so that way they people can call their relatives. And these are all things that we saw happen and we wanted to be able to incorporate it, incorporate it into a story. So we were able to do that with this. The story about the morgue and these screenshots that come overhead and these people are just watching all these pictures come up on the computer. I mean, some of these were headless corpses. Some of these were tortured. I mean, I think Lulu ended up going to the morgue and doing a piece about just being in the morgue. But these are things that were all happening and we wanted to be able to try and put as many of those details in this piece. The hardest thing about this piece was when Abdullah came to me and he said, I want to do this story. 
And by doing it, I said to him, you're basically acknowledging that your dad is gone. And I checked with my editor, and he had the same question. And it was very difficult to agree to do it because I, I kind of didn't want to believe that there was no hope left for his father. And, um, but he was like, no. I mean, it was a couple of months after. You know, and he's like, I recorded the conversation. I want to do the story. Um, we interviewed him, Abdullah, um, and you know, it was like here. But when you say when we say studio in Baghdad, it's very rudimentary. It's it's awful. I mean, you know, there's like a wooden you know thing, and we've got these foam pad things, and you sort of stick your head in, or you stick a coat over your head, and try to. Um, the engineering guys were never happy with my tracking. They, there was always like air conditioning or a generator or something going on in the background. And, um, you know, I just, that, that's what it always sounded like when I tracked, you know. But, but so the wind, but he sounded really clear and then you, it just sounded so different and I was curious were they, and I feel like they were probably nearer to the same space or not. No, I'm, I'm trying to think. I should call, Diana Douglas produced that piece and she's in Chicago and I just had brunch with her and I should call her and make her answer this question. Because <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, I mean, it was just, this was a really difficult piece for me to even read, you know, I just, I found it very difficult and I, you know. I don't think there's any loss in that. I was just, I mean, the thing, the, the, why I noticed it is I felt like I could hear you as a reporter and then when he was talking, and then, I mean, and I think it's, it's it maybe kind of good that there was a little bit of a, something different to like bring us back to this is a story that this is like something that's right now. So, I mean, I, I, I think we're good at that. But that in, in some way, the technical quality almost helped. But it's just, a, it's an interesting thing that it just sounded so good. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did the best that I could. <laughs> Right, right. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, I can't speak to the technical specificities of it. You know. Sorry, yes. Um, I don't know to what extent you can talk about it, but uh, was did NPR consider contributing to the ransom because he was an employee? And was that talked about? Um, I'm just trying to remember. We had a couple of kidnapping situations that we had to deal with. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I know that Abdullah ended up getting all of the money from his people eventually. Yeah. Can you talk about um, how you generate story ideas when, when almost everything would be different for your audience? How do you decide what to cover while you're there? Um, I, I think it comes down to, you know, like we said, everyday life. What are the issues? Um, and it could be anything, you know. Um, I'm just I'm trying to think of, you know, the, the stories that I did while I was there, you know, the story about the volunteers pulling the bodies out of the water. There was also a woman who would wash the bodies of the dead. The problem was that everything revolved around the violence. I mean, there was no way to avoid that. And even if you did a story about, we did a story about a musical troupe, um, and, you know, back in 
back in the back in the day they used to be able to you know have these processions in the middle of the street and perform in front of everyone and be very open about their you know their music and they came to visit us and one of the guys had his sort of drum thing in a gym bag another one had his instrument in a flower sack you know they're hiding their stuff to get to us um, because of the situation so um, even if I was doing a story about a musical group there was still the aspect of the violence that we had to address whether we liked it or not it was just always there but it was I mean you, you try to do as many sort of different aspects of life and that was what it really was for me, trying to explain to people the differences, why people were killing each other, why people weren't getting along, what, you know, what do people care about, you know, because you, you try to explain um, this whole, you know, the, 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 the differences between the Sunnis and the Shia and why, you know, these people felt they were persecuted and why these people are taking revenge now and why these people are doing what they're doing. I mean, it's just those are the sorts of things to try to make it as accessible to people here who don't understand it's like why aren't they all iraqi I mean, what's going on you know and and how much did you know the u.s contribute to that situation as well so i mean it's difficult there it certainly feels like when you're doing the treadmill of just the sort of daily violent stories that it's difficult to sort of step out from that and and you know there's always sort of combat fatigue from people who listen they don't want to hear another story about the dead and the dying you know so you've got to think of different ways to to do that Yes, in the back. How did you combat the feeling that when you were interviewing somebody for a story that you were able to go back and have a full meal for dinner and have, you know, the amenities of, of uh, you know, sort of a, a normal Western life in this kind of a country when your heart might have been to sort of reach out and, and help them as much as you could? Forgive me if you mentioned that earlier. Well, I didn't have a full meal when I was living in Iraq because uh, I just kind of got sick of the food. Um, but whenever it was, it was, you know, I mean, I said this before about the way public radio listeners react to stories and how giving they are. And, you know, Annie Garrels did a story about this surgeon in Najaf and how he just needed some sort of heart monitor monitoring equipment. And the next thing you know, he just, they're inundated with donations. Um, it was really difficult to walk away from situations that you couldn't do anything about. And whatever I felt like I could do, I did. Whether it was giving someone my phone to say, here, you need to call your relative in America and knock yourself out. Um, or, um, you know, this woman who couldn't find her son or her husband and she said, this is his name, can you at least ask somebody? And I would do what I could to ask after that person. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, if, if there was a little thing that I could do to help, then I would try to do that. Or if there was a way that I couldn't get involved, at, you know, ethically, then I wouldn't. But I would try to do other things. Like one of the last stories I did in Iraq was about this girl who was literally on the verge of prostitution. She was 12 and, um, you know, she didn't have really parents. Um, you know, she had an, a grandma who couldn't run after her and keep her home. And But she had these people who um, sort of like the, 
I would call them sort of foster parents who try to keep an eye on her and take care of her and everything. And when we left the interview, you know, I spoke to Isra and, you know, I said, you know, find out if they need anything, you know, maybe we can get them some clothes and do something like that. But, you know, I, I, they, they, you know, you can't do everything. You can't save the world. Uh, you want to, you can't. But you just do what you can. And even if it's a little bit, I always just try to do that. And it's, it's difficult to walk away from something that you, you feel is just hopeless. Sorry. How did people react to you being like, like a Westerner or whatever? Or how did, like, did people give you a lot of grief? Um, well, like if they were, if they didn't like what was happening? Definitely. I mean, you, you know, there are people who saw an opportunity to sort of vent at people, you know, at the American government, at, you know, at the American military, about anybody. They took it as an opportunity to tell you how they felt, you know. It's like, it's just going, it's like going anywhere. If you were a reporter and you went to a place where, you know, it doesn't have to be in a war zone, it doesn't have to be in another country. It could be, you know, oh, you're from NPR. I don't like NPR. And here's why. You know, it doesn't really matter where you are. You're going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one more question no you're fine okay um, well I think we're done yeah okay well thank you so much